Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for leading this series. It's really been a beautiful gift for my life. And I've been getting feedback from people in different parts of the world who also have been touched by this reading of the interior castle. And I I think this is a very timely and very important piece of spiritual literature that we have today. Here we are, as she says in the very first paragraph, You may think, sisters, that so much has been said of this spiritual journey that nothing remains to be added. But she even says herself, that would be a great mistake. And boy, that's an understatement, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, in the opening lines here, a theme that you see is the greatness of God that can never be exhausted. Here we come into the the final mansion, and she's going to say some beautiful things, but her basic word is that this is not the end of the adventure. This is just the beginning. And the greatness of God can be communicated even more than what she wants to show us in this. The power of stating that is that even though, you know, the best is yet to come, the greatness of God has only begun to be explored. She also writes that writing about this particular seventh mansion brings her to the edge of what she's able to talk about. And so even though she knows there's a lot more to our union with God, she's coming up against the edge of what she can explain to others in a way that will build up her faith. So this suggests that this most highest degree of prayer that we're going to be discussing in the seventh mansion is something that is even more wonderful than these words and all that will be shared here in exploring it can it possibly express. And what goes beyond it, it's not that there aren't, isn't more beyond this, but that the limits of our language prevent us from being able to explore even more profound degrees and experiences of union that occur in this reality she's calling the consummation of the spiritual marriage. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite all-time lines of Teresa, and I came across this a long time ago, and I don't know why it just has always stuck with me, is contained in this first paragraph of the Seventh Mansion, chapter one. And she says, each of us possesses a soul but we do not realize its value as made in the image of God. 
Therefore, we fail to understand the important secrets it contains. Given as just one sentence in that paragraph, you, know, you may not notice it, but that one understanding, that is the essence of mystery. It's the essence of transcendence, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, you know, to be in the image and likeness of God, this is part of our, our dignity. Sometimes those words come out of us or uh, we intellectually assent to them. But what she's saying is that there's deep mysteries here. John Paul II uses the language in his own theology body. He talks about deeper substrata of human existence need to be explored. And in this way, you know, Teresa Davila is kind of an explorer and guide who's helping us plummet the depths a little bit. So, Anthony, as we move forward in the Seventh Mansion, she's describing an experience. I mean, we've we've heard so many different things about locutions and experiences of the eyes or the intellect and the imagination. She's trying to, I mean, in so many different ways, trying to give something that seems almost impossible to explain. Yes, and so the next paragraph after what you just cited goes on to explain that this limit that she's coming again, up against in terms of her ability to convey exactly what she understands going on. She's a little bit concerned that people are going to think that what she's writing about comes out of her experience. And as she even says, if anybody thinks that I'm writing about something that comes out of my experience, I'd be very ashamed. This is kind of an interesting thing because she most certainly is in the seventh mansion when she's writing this, but she's trying to write about it objectively, not from the standpoint of this is what I experienced as if her experience was the standard. She's trying to write about it a little bit more objectively. She's trying to say that notwithstanding her experience, these are things that she has learned happens to souls who attain these heights. And she's trying to tackle it from that perspective rather than, you know, this is my experience versus your experience, whatever. She doesn't want this to be an exercise of a subjectivism. She very subtly throughout this seventh mansion and really throughout the whole book, you have to look for it, and it's not always obvious, but she's really focusing on the greatness of God and what God does to the soul rather than what the soul experiences. Because if we go by what we think we experience or we don't experience, we always make mistakes. We always want to put ourselves higher and lower than we are. But if we look at what God does in the life of prayer, and what he's capable of doing, then I'm a little bit free from what I'm experiencing or not experiencing, and I can wonder over the beauty and greatness and just pure wonder of who God is. And that's what she wants us to do. She wants us to wonder over the splendor of God's glory. And this whole exploration has taken us deeper and deeper into the soul, the soul which is in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, his dwelling place par excellence, a second heaven, she'll call it. Uh, she wants us to go there so that we can find him and glorify him and praise him. In other words, this journey has not been about accumulating experiences as if the experiences are about what Christian prayer is all about. The Christian prayer contains all these experiences. These experiences can come, and for some, maybe many, they will 
every soul is so different. So she's writing about all the experiences that can happen, but a given soul may or may not have that. It doesn't matter which experience the soul has or doesn't have. It matters what God does in the soul. And that's where she wants us to put our attention. Oh, now I'm starting to remember the words of a little one from Dijon, who one of her spiritual daughters, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who will always say, remember, remember, recalling, as as opposed to saying, describing in her retreats, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, of course, I'm speaking of, such a dear friend to so many of us uh, who are listening, that she, in her retreats, it was never about so much, you will experience this, 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 or this, but she's always trying to have you recall, and she ultimately brings you into this, the mystery that her spiritual mother is describing. Yes. Elizabeth of the Trinity, in a different kind of way, Therese of Lazur, John of the Cross, reading them and only seeing the experiences that they describe would hardly do them justice. They have their hearts intent upon God, who is the object of their contemplation, that he has captivated their whole being. And they're trying to tell us about him. They might refer to their own experience, but not as the standard about what we should experience ourselves, but rather the only times they refer to it at all and then only very discreetly, they refer to it to help us realize the powerful things that God is doing to remind us of the immensity uh, and, and grandeur of his love. So here, Teresa sets the tone for this, for the whole Carmelite mystical tradition. She stands out among spiritual writers precisely because of her objectivity in talking about even the spiritual marriage. Anthony, as we're approaching you know, going in deeper into this particular section, she talks about the nature of the soul. And she has, you know, a description. When she's talking about the soul as something that is no longer in darkness, there is no no darkness. It's that, that penetrating experience of light. And, you know, I, I know that some may hear this, and, you know, back into the words, you know, they, they've heard things from St. John of the Cross about dark nights of the soul and dark nights of the spirit. But it seems as though th- at this particular point in her description of the soul, it is like a continual presence of light. I'm not trying to say that she's saying that the soul is just like our blessed mothers, but it's very close to the way it should have been for all of us from the beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and this is one of the things where she, her concentration on God rather than our own experience is very helpful because the soul is bathed in light by God. The only time it's not is when a soul is fallen into mortal sin. And so she talks about these unhappy souls who are cut off from the uh, the light of the Lord that they're blind and dumb, and we need to pray for them, she says about them. But she only talks about those souls to contrast them in this soul that is being brought into the seventh mansion is is a luminous soul. Its soul is, a, she calls it a second heaven. It's filled with radiance. And we have our soul, and it has all these chambers, 
And then we have kind of, you might call it our spiritual subjectivity, what we're aware of or where we're dwelling in our freedom, in our soul, and can be on the exterior of that. We saw that in earlier parts of the book. And when you do that, you're very vulnerable to the exigencies of the moment. We're now going into the deepest center of the soul. And for her, it's a trysting place. It's a marriage chamber where the Lord is going to consummate the work of union that he has started to do from the very beginning. Consummation, you know, this is about a union and it's about being generative. It's about some kind of new life that flows from the unity. And that's what can happen in the soul mirrors or is in the image and likeness of what happens in the Holy Trinity itself. The divine persons are deeply united with each other. They are the source of new life. The Father doesn't absorb the Son or the Holy Spirit. So there's distinction and yet unity, which is beautiful. It's meaningful. It's filled with goodness and being. And at the same time, it's the source of new life. And so that's her vision of the soul, to speak of the soul as an indwelling place for that. Only a soul that was somehow like that communion of persons, which is the Holy Trinity, could be able to receive the gift of the Holy Trinity in this dynamic, indwelling, unitive, and generative way. And she's saying, you know, that's what this reality is. That's what we're going to be talking about in the seventh mansion. She, she says, in affirming all of that, she also acknowledges a little bit of a problem. The problem is, as we're trying to describe that, people's experience of the soul isn't as something luminous. Most people experience the soul is something dark. They don't really see it and they don't understand it. And what she's saying here is that lack of appreciation of what the soul actually is in its depths and grandeur, that lack of appreciation really does apply to souls of mortal sin, but not really to the rest of us. To the rest of us, it might seem dark, but actually there's something more beautiful going on. And so she goes on to talk about souls who are in a state of grace and how the Lord in the prayer of, she called it the prayer of union, a prayer that leads up to this very special, perfect kind of union that she's talking about in this. Already in the prayer of union, there is a resting of the soul in God. There's already something unitive going on. There's already something generative going on. There's, all, there's something delightful going on. The problem is that in these earlier stages, your faculties, your intellect, your will, even your appetite, not so much your will would be involved, but your appetites, your imagination, your memory, what you understand, they tend to be in the dark. And so you, you have a rapture, but when you're in rapture, you don't really understand what's going on afterwards. And so this is St. John of the Cross's doctrine of nights. He ferrets this out a little bit more in his spiritual writings. And, you know, why it is we don't understand what's going on and what God's doing when we don't understand what's going on. But the idea, and this is true in John of the Cross's writings too, it's not the case that our souls actually dark. It's actually kind of the John of the Cross, the way he describes it. The brightness of the Lord is so great, we're blinded by it. We just, we're not able to see. In the seventh mansion, Teresa Babla is saying that God has the power to open up our eyes. So at last now, we are able to see his grandeur when she describes something like this, what she describes is so stupendous, it's so wonderful, it sounds a lot like the beatific vision. Theologically, we know it's not the same as the beatific vision, but what we do say is that it's something that anticipates it. 
uh, something about contemplative prayer at this level of union is like what will happen in eternity, that the essential difference is this happens in time. It has a beginning and an end. What God is going to do for us in the beatific vision will have no end. And so this might last for you know a relatively short period of time, and it's going to be so transforming and generative for the soul and fruitful for the soul and unitive for the soul. It's going to build it up and perfect its power in such wonderful, powerful ways. What's going to happen in heaven when that vision is uninterrupted and God is able to freely communicate everything he wants to communicate into the soul that he's longed to do so for uh, this whole time, but couldn't because we wouldn't have been able to stand it. Now the soul is just beginning to be strong enough to receive this communication from God in a way that will help it grow into fullness, into full maturity. You know, that's the basic movement where, where we're going with this. So what you're talking about, how she describes the soul, I mean, it's the image and likeness of God with depth to it. We need to research those depths. And our immediate reaction, uh, again, is to kind of question or doubt or not be certain about that, at least as it in our own experience. And the reason why we, we do that is because we haven't had this experience where God opens up the eyes of our hearts. We've had most of our experiences, our intellects aren't yet transformed enough to be able to receive this kind of life. Our intellects are more blinded by it, according to St. John of the Cross. But for all that, we're not really dark. We're a beautiful jewel filled with the radiance of God shining forth in the universe. In the seventh mansion, now we get to see what God sees, what God knows about our souls, the truth of who we are. That's the journey right here, and it's a journey that's hard for us to understand. So this section is going to be harder for us to read because our own experience makes it difficult for us to enter into everything she's trying to say. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, 
one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. You know, I think, Anthony, is it helpful at all to recall that, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation, that she is most certainly experiencing, is dwelling in the seventh mansion herself. She's being very careful about how she writes about this, but, I mean, this is what, where she is at. And this book is essentially written in her later years. And we know from the, uh, you know, the, her life and her experiences at this time, she's a very active woman. She is busy. She's moving. She's doing. She's also physically suffering. And my point in all that is that I think when you first read this, at least for me, it was, Ooh, this person is just so untouchably holy, whoa, out there. But yet here is Teresa. I mean, she's just active out in the world, not unlike many people that we see. So what does this look like? And for the person who is listening who will say, I could never experience this. That's way beyond anything I could possibly hope for. Because Teresa was very, I don't want to say normal, but she was real. I mean, she wouldn't want us not to dive into those depths as you've just described them. Am I correct? Well, no. They, I mean, that's the reason why she's writing about this right now. She she dares write about this because she wants to build this up. If she realizes she's kind of reaching the limit of what language can express about it. And she's also very attentive as she's going forward and doing this. She's not trying to have people you know, admire her for her own experience. There's a reason why she wants us to know about what God is doing at this mansion. And the reason why is because what God does at this level sheds light on everything that came before it. It's a little bit like a lot of people who uh, read Dante Alighieri's uh, Divine Comedy, and the only part of the Divine Comedy they've ever read or discussed or thought about is the Inferno which is the, the, the part on hell. You don't realize if you never read to the end of the poem and spend some time in purgatory and then in heaven, that everybody that's talking to you in hell, their notion about what's really going on is really distorted. And you're being lied to all over the place when you're, you, when Dante Alighieri's 
speaking to those souls that you know that he finds in hell. Well, Teresa Avila, believe it or not, has just done the same thing Dante has done. You know, we think that the soul is dark. We don't think there's a lot to understand there. We don't think there are beautiful depths and that there's splendor and light, because when we go to pray, that's not our experience. You know, and I'm repeating myself a little bit, uh, but you know, just like Dante Alighieri explained, you, you know, uh, it tries to show forth in his poem. It is true, souls that really have cut themselves off from God, that have lost uh, their grace, that need conversion. They really are dark, and they need healing right away, and we need to pray for them. Not to pray for them is, is a terrible indifference. That being said, the next level of souls, and she kind of like suggests that most of us are kind of here, you know, we're in a state of grace. We don't really see what's going on. It's dark to us. Uh, we don't think anything that beautiful is going on because we can't see it. We assume there's no light, and it's not till you enter into full maturity with the Lord and let him draw you into this deeper place of union with him, of fruitfulness with him, that all of a sudden you begin to see your life and it makes sense for the first time. Now, why does she want us to know that? She wants us to know about this because we do have a distorted view of what's going on in our lives right now. We don't really see, and she's trying to affirm for us that what God's doing in our hearts right now is really extremely beautiful. And we don't understand it right now, but at some point in this life or the next, we're going to be raised to a point of maturity where we will see what he's doing and we will see how beautiful it is and we're going to be astounded by it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I, I would call it the principle of greatness. Is it likely that uh, you know most people who study this work will ever attain the seventh mansion in this life? this highest degree of intimacy. And I, I'm not so sure. I think it's kind of rare for people to be able to enter into this. That being said, the people that God calls to this are not the ones who are floating three feet off the ground and living otherworldly. The people that God calls to this are more in touch with their humanity and extremely involved in loving the people that God has placed in their life. You know, they're not aloof or indifferent to Christ's work of redemption in the world, they're more engaged with it. And this is true whether they're a Carthusian monk or a mother of a very busy family. So to everyone is the possibility of entering into the seventh mansion. And I think part of the beauty of the description is that Teresa wants us to aspire to this. Even though we might be a lot more immature, maybe in this life we'll never arrive at that destination, it is worth putting all our effort trying to avail ourselves uh, of the wonders that God can do in us. It's worth every effort to trust God and to live for him and to seek him with all our strength and all our might. She wants to motivate us to seek him and so that however far we get, we're able to get there because we are completely collaborating with the Lord wholeheartedly rather than being half-hearted about it. Think of that parable of the people with different amounts of talent. The master goes away, uh, uh, before he goes, he gives them different amounts of talent. The, the guy with the most amount of talent invests it and makes the most money and that makes the most uh, return on the investment. And the second one, you know, also invests it. But the third one who didn't think he had that much, buried it. And 
Teresa wants us to realize we're like the first servant who've been given an immense amount of goodness to invest, and we can get a great return on our money if we invest in it and watch what God is going to do. It can even lead up to this, and she shares it. So do you see the two things on one? She wants us to realize that even though we don't understand everything that God's doing in our life, it's really beautiful, and someday we will. On the other hand, she also wants us to aspire to put our whole heart into following the Lord, into living the spiritual life, and to make holiness the priority of our hearts, because when we do, God does more and more wonderful things, and it's completely worth it, no matter how far into the mansion we get to go, what God achieves there is absolutely beautiful. She, so she's trying to motivate us, and she's trying to reassure us. Anthony, what more can we take just from this opening chapter of the seventh mansion? We didn't even get to kind of the most extraordinary grace, I think, that she describes. She describes in here the difference between, as she distinguishes very concretely, the difference between this mansion and everything that came before it. I described it, but she actually talks about an intellectual vision, a particular kind. Now, in the last mansion, she was describing different kinds of, of visions and locutions. But here, in this mansion, everything is different. Our good God now desires to remove the scales from the eyes of the soul so that it may see and understand something of the favor which he is granting to it. Although he is doing this in a strange manner, it is brought into this mansion by means of an intellectual vision in which, by representation of the truth in a particular way, the Holy, Most Holy Trinity reveals itself in all three persons. For those of you who have the text in front of you, you might continue reading it's very beautiful. The point is that there's this intellectual understanding that is given to the soul. It's the scales fall off the eyes. A truth is represented to it in a very particular way. She calls this an intellectual vision of the three persons. One of the best descriptions, I, I think it's the same reality. He was not Carmelite, but he did experience something like this, and this is St. Ignatius of Loyola during his time in Manresa has a vision of the Holy Trinity, and scholars have wondered about this vision. He refers to it in his writings. They're wondering, what is a vision of the Holy Trinity? And all those who've wondered over that in the writings of St. Ignatius can wonder over the same reality here. Somehow the power and the substance and the knowledge of God that is communicated among the three persons is made known to the soul in some way, as she speaks about a mysterious way, and the soul is communicating itself. Again, to go to John Paul II in his Theology of Body, if you go to the third triptych, the final catechesis, he talks about the resurrection, and he talks about life in the world to come, and he talks about this communication of God into our own subjectivity our own free personal center as body-soul connected together, uh, he, a psychosomatic uh, structure, he calls it. He's using very kind of sophisticated language as he's trying to convey what he's saying in that part about all the truth and being and goodness 
and beauty that God is communicating to the soul in the beatific vision that actually transforms all of our all of our powers, all the powers of our soul, and even our body itself is is being transformed in that glory. What Teresa of Avila is saying is that in this intellectual vision of the Trinity, something of what John Paul II is describing as the beatific vision is already being unleashed in our existence. And one moment of that transforms everything in the universe. John of the Cross also describes this kind of contemplation. He talks about the movement of the word in the substance of the soul. For those of you who are students of John of the Cross and living flame, the fourth stanza in the fourth paragraph of his commentary, you will see this description of the word moving in the substance of the soul. And if you attend to that very carefully, not only is the soul transformed, but the whole universe, the air, all of God's creation is moved by what God does in the depths of our spirit. When the Holy Trinity reveals himself in the depths of this soul to the soul, there is something transformative that happens in the soul and that redounds to the whole universe. And it's that which Teresa of Avila is trying to draw our attention. This kind of apprehension is more than simply intellectually assenting to a, a, a truth of the faith, in this case, the, the doctrine of the divine indwelling. It's, what, uh, you know, it's one thing uh, as, as a, a teacher at a seminary for me to be able to explain the indwelling of the Trinity to another person. It's another thing when this communication that happens through the indwelling of the Trinity is given to the soul. The most beautiful and sublime and, and exquisite thing that could happen to the human person begins to be unleashed in those depths. And there's fulfillment and profound satisfaction. There's the fulfillment of desire in the very purpose of my existence begins to become, well, I become aware of it in a brand new way. This intellectual apprehension is of the Trinity, but as we see the Trinity, we all of a sudden begin to realize the truth about who we really are. Anthony, for those who are listening, and I mean, they, they have taken the journey to this centered place, this, this sacred, sacred place of the seventh mansion, how would you have them pray now with this chapter? They've read it now. These are mysteries that may seem unattainable. And yet, as you said, it's the desire. It's the place that we desire to go. And there's a fulfillment there, but we may not be there yet. How would you have them pray with this particular chapter so its immensity isn't lost? You know, this is where Elizabeth of the Trinity is especially helpful. As you pray through this, you know, Elizabeth of the Trinity, when she writes to her Carmelite sisters, she has the soul sing the song of Neshiwi. Neshiwi, it means I no longer know anything. And it's the song of the bride as she's being led into the marriage chamber, which is the inner wine cellar, the inner wine cellar. Uh, and hopefully we get to explore this in a future uh, program, but the inner wine cellar is where our union and fruitfulness of God is made known, uh, is realized. It's the trysting place for the soul with the Lord. And Nishiwi, I no longer know anything, Elizabeth adds, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think 
one of the things never to lose sight of is Teresa of Avila, or actually Teresa of Jesus is writing to us, is that Teresa of Jesus always keeps the humanity of Jesus right in front of her. She always keeps what he did for us and what he suffered for us in the forefront of her thoughts. And so when she talks about this communication of the Holy Trinity, and when she talks about the presence of the Lord, and when she talks about this is really just the beginning, there's so much more. If you have a crucifix in front of you and you ponder the great price that was paid to free us from sin so that we might know the love of the Father, and that that love is revealed to us in Christ Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. This presence comes to us through the cross. The indwelling of the Trinity is realized because the cross unlocked the door of our hearts. Think about with great devotion uh, Jesus's love for you. And as you realize that, then in the face of that, you know some of the things that she's brought up here, She's affirmed for us in this chapter that we are in the image and likeness of God. And that image and likeness is not a shallow reality, but a reality with profound depths and beauty and grandeur that we have hardly begun to explore. And that for most of us, we don't even have the slightest apprehension of how wondrous it is. And God has created us in that, you know, that in itself is a beautiful thing to help you. Jesus died to redeem that because for him, that is worth dying for. That beautiful grandeur of the soul that you are, for him, that is worth laying down his life because that you should exist, that the grandeur and depths and wonder of who you are should be in the world. He wanted to save that from the fires of hell and he wanted to hold that up so that it might be before the face of his father in joy and splendor and fulfillment. That's the first thing. The second thing is to realize that not only that, Jesus by his death on the cross, by his sacred humanity, has opened up our hearts so that the gift of the Holy Trinity can dwell there through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can have this personal relationship with each of the persons of the Trinity And the deeper we go into that personal relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the more the truth about who we are is unveiled to us. And we may not understand it at first, and we may be for many years even in a state of prayer where the mystery of the Trinity just doesn't seem to be all that present to us. But if that is your experience, if that's your understanding, if it feels your understanding is dark, Faith is about trusting that even though this is my experience, the reality of the Trinity is there and the immensity of God's love is there and the beauty and grandeur of my soul is there, even though I can't see it. I can trust God and he's the one who says that this is so and so I can believe it. When you approach this passage in this way, two things will begin to happen for your soul. The first thing is there can be moments where you are brought into profound astonishment over the wonder of God's love, the God who made you and the God who is filling you with his life, even though you can't see it. And the second thing that will happen as you uh, believe in this 
presence and trust in your presence as you let your spirit cry out, Neshili, I no longer know anything but Christ Jesus and him crucified. As you let yourself cry out with that cry, you will are likely to be able to glimpse because of the wisdom of Teresa of Avila expressed here in such a beautiful way, you will glimpse the greatness to which we are called. So there's the greatness of who you are and there's the greatness to which we're called. And Teresa, her words are geared to motivating you to want to get there. If you are successful in bringing this into your prayer, what will awaken in your heart, it's there right now, you just don't realize it, is a deep yearning ache for the Lord, a profound desire that we often lose sight of and that we're not very conscious of in the background of our, our lives. And sometimes we spend a lot of time distracting ourselves from this ennui for the presence of the Lord. If you go into prayer and avail yourself by faith, goodness of who you are and that you're a dwelling place for God and that you're called for greater things, and you let this desire take hold and begin to ache inside you, that ache, that pain of love that you suffer waiting for the Lord, that's going to change you. That's going to move you into the direction of going deeper into the mansion, deeper into the interior castle. It's going to make you vulnerable to all the beautiful gifts that God wants to lavish upon you. Amen. Let's begin our prayer. Anthony, this is so beautiful. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lowe.